Is anyone trying to move uh, to a different house right now or kind of in, interested? All right. Yeah, Tay, I know you are. Okay. Uh, so uh, moving is stressful. You know this. Moving is stressful. There's a lot you have to figure out. Well, the first thing you obviously need to figure out is where you're going to move. Are you going to move to a house? Are you going to move to an apartment? How much are you willing to pay? What kind of city do you want to live in? What kind of neighborhood do you want to live in? What kind of amenities do you want nearby? What, how close do you want to be to your neighbors? You've you got to figure out where you want to go. But that's not, a, that's not all you have to figure out if you're trying to move. You also have to figure out what you're going to do with your current place. Now, maybe just the rent is up or maybe you own it. So you might need to sell it. How are you going to sell it? Are you going to sell it on your own? Are you going to use a realtor? How much are you going to charge for it? How quickly do you need to sell it? Well, let's say the stars align and you find the new place, you sell your current place, but then you got to figure out what you're going to do with your stuff. How much stuff do you have? How much can you take with you? How much can you leave behind? Do you need to get rid of any stuff? You know, maybe that sofa that has five holes in it and smells like the last three dogs you have, maybe it's time to part ways. So do you need to have a garage sale? How big of a U-Haul do you need to get? Do you need to get a storage locker? Do you need to call your one friend who has the pickup truck who everybody calls when they move? I'm sorry if that's you. Moving is stressful. In the book of numbers of the last six weeks, God's people are moving. And we've seen that it's not just been stressful, it's been hard. There have been lots of setbacks. It's been a long process. If you're there with me already, we can even just do an overview of the entire book. In Numbers chapters 1 to 10, God is preparing his people. He prepares his people to march to their new home, which we call the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he prepares them by centering their lives around his presence. And then that brings us to chapters 10 through 12. And there we start to see that the march to the promised land is not going to be easy. It will be very hard. We'll see what they need to survive in the wilderness. Well, then in chapters 13 and 14, God's people arrive at the edge of their new home, the edge of the promised land, and they send 12 spies to go check it out and give them a report. Ten of those spies say, yeah, it's good, but let's not go in. Two of those spies say, yeah, it's good, and let's go in. Well, they listen to the 10. They refuse to trust God and enter the promised land. And so God tells them, this wilderness generation will spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. That brings us to chapters 15 through 19. And there, though a major setback, we see the show will go on. The next generation will enter the land and God will still provide a way for them to have peace with him. He'll provide them priests who stand in their place. He'll provide them sacrifices that pay for their sin. Then in chapters 20 through 21, the new generation that will enter the wilderness starts to take center stage. And we see all that they will need to be different from their parents and actually enter the promised land. And then last week, chapters 22 through 26, we saw how God's sure and stable love overcomes the threats of enemies, the enemies from the Moabites, and his sure love overcomes even his own people's idolatry and sin. So that brings us today to the end of the book of Numbers. And in many ways, the book ends the same way as the book began. There's a census of the men who are of fighting age. There are rules and regulations for how God intends his people to live. There is even talks of priests and Levites. So it's a new generation. 
but it is the same message. God is once again preparing his people. And at the end of the book, the emphasis isn't so much on being prepared to march to the land. It's being prepared to live in the land. And so if we could summarize the last, uh, last few chapters of Numbers, we could do it like this. Israel's story points to what God will do through his son, Jesus, that God has delivered us, he is preparing us, and he will bring us home. So as we walk through the final chapters of Numbers, we'll give 10 answers. Yes, 10 answers to the question. What will God's people need to live in the promised land? What will they need? If you're a note taker, I'll make sure those answers are very clear as we go along. Answer number one comes from chapter 26. If you're not there with me, let's turn there. Numbers chapter 26. To live in the promised land, God's people will need to view themselves as belonging to God. God's people will need to view themselves as belonging to God. If you're there with me, you can find Numbers 26 on page 134. Bibles that look like this, the Bibles that are provided. So if you owned a Babe Ruth baseball card from 1927, if you flipped over to the back, you would find a series of numbers. You'd find numbers like 158, 60, and 0.356. Now, if you didn't know anything, you would say these numbers are meaningless. What, what's going on here? But you would know the, they would take on new significance if you knew the meaning behind them. In 1927, Babe Ruth scored 158 times. He hit 60 home runs, and he got a base hit 36% of the time. These are, this is the meaning behind these numbers. And you would know that this is among the best single-season stats of any base, professional baseball player ever. So you come to Numbers 26, and you read more numbers. Yet another census. This is a part of your Bible reading plan that you say, seen it before, I could just go to the next chapter. And at first, these numbers might appear meaningless, but you need to know the significance behind them. And to know that significance, you have to read closely and you have to compare this list to the first list in Numbers chapter one. In Numbers chapter one, we get another census, but it was of the previous generation. And now in Numbers 26, we get a census of this new generation. And we can compare in a couple ways. I think there are a couple numbers that are significant when you compare the two lists. The first one comes in chapter 26, verse 14. This is the number of the Simeonites, the people from the tribe of Simeon. It says they are 22,200. In the first list, there were 59,300 men from the tribe of Simeon. So why this decrease? Why this big decrease? Well, chapter 25 tells us. In chapter 25, this guy named Zimri, who's from the tribe of Simeon, goes to the entrance of the tabernacle where God meets his people, and he is sleeping with a foreign woman there. And a plague breaks out. And apparently this plague affected the Simeonites the most. And so just this number, which seems so random, would remind the people that they belong to God who is holy and who will justly judge sin. Yet there's another number that should catch your eye, and it comes at the very end of the list. 601,730. 
This is the grand total. If you compare this to the first list in Numbers 1, you would see there 603,550. So the wilderness generation has died off over the course of 40 years. There are only two guys who are included in both lists, in both Numbers 1 and in Numbers 26. Those two guys are Joshua and Caleb. These are the two faithful spies from Numbers 14. So although Israel had lost a huge number, God has now raised up a huge number. So here, 601,730 would remind them of the kind of God that they belong to. They belong to the merciful God who forgives and who restores sinners. So as they enter the land, God's people need to remember that they belong to him. He has numbered them. My friend, a question for you. Are you numbered among God's people? Are you numbered among God's children? This isn't something that you have by natural birthright. This is something that you have by new birth. This isn't something you have by your own blood. This is something that you have by God's son's blood. You no longer trust in yourself, the good things that you've done. You no longer trust that, hey, I'm better than the people around me. No, you trust in Jesus. It is through trust in his sacrifice for you that God can adopt you into his family and you can be numbered among them. Christian, remember, God has always numbered his people Even before the foundation of the world, God has known you and he will not lose track of you. The Bible says he knows those who are his. Take comfort in that. You know, this is one reason why we are careful to do meaningful church membership. We seek to reflect God's act of numbering. We seek to know those who are under our care at this church. Starting off early in the book of Acts, the church numbered its people They wanted to know who was a part of them. And so we aim to do the same. And with God's help, we don't want to lose track of our people. So we want to know who our people are. Well, answer number two comes from chapter 27. What will they need to live in the promised land? God's people will need to view the land as belonging to God, not just themselves. They will need to view the land as belonging to God. So if chapter 26 contains what seems like a random set of numbers, chapter 27 contains what seems like a random story. But this is the reason why we've gone through numbers at a little bit faster of a pace, because each week we want to keep one eye on the big story of numbers. And when you do that, and when you keep one eye on the big story of the entire Bible, it will help you make sense of the smaller stories that seem a little bit random and confusing. So the smaller story in this case in chapter 27 begins with what, uh, these, this group that's called the Daughters of Zelophehad. Now, I'm definitely going to mess up that name, so I'm just going to call him Z, okay? The Daughters of Z in Numbers 27. So this is what's going on. They bring their case to Moses. They bring some promised land case law. You see, Big Z died in the wilderness with the rest of that generation, but Z only had daughters. He didn't have any sons. And how it's worked in Israel is that only sons can inherit the land. So Z's daughters, they don't want to see their family lose their inheritance, so they bring their situation to Moses. And through Moses, God tells them that in this situation, 
a man can leave behind his land to his daughters. And if he doesn't even have daughters, then they can do what they can to give it to the closest family relative. Now, this seems like a random story, but if we keep one eye on the bigger story of numbers, we could start to make sense of it. On the bigger story of numbers, we would remember where God's people are in this moment. Are they in the promised land yet? No, they're not. They're still in the wilderness. They haven't received the land. And yet, here are these women who bring to Moses their concern about inheriting the land. So it's like these daughters are so sure that God will give them the promised land that they already start to consider what it will mean for their lives. It's like they, are, they see what God is doing and they tell Moses, we want in. Friend, God is doing something right now. He's not just preparing a physical promised land. He's preparing an eternal promised land for his people. And you can be a part of it. Be like the daughters of Zelophehad and tell Jesus that I want in. Listen to Jesus's invitation. You've heard it before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The daughters of Zelophehad knew that the land belonged to God and so did Moses. He also knew that. Chapter 27 ends with God speaking to Moses on a mountain. God reminds Moses that, Moses, you aren't going to lead my people into the promised land because you sinned against me. Back in Numbers 20, instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock and he misrepresented who God was. So when God tells Moses this, Moses doesn't respond in self-interest. He doesn't respond with self-pity, feeling bad for himself. No, he, he responds by being concerned for the people. Moses knows that if the people are going to live in God's land, that they will need a shepherd He knows that they are sheep who are prone to wander. So they will need a shepherd who will seek them, who will lead them, who will tend to them. So God tells Moses that he will raise up Joshua for this role. Now, Joshua won't have the same level of authority as Moses, but God equipped Joshua for what he has called him to do. God gave Joshua the Holy Spirit. Chapter 27, verse 18. Now, if we keep one eye on the bigger story of the entire Bible, we can start to see even more significance of Numbers 27. You see, God answers Moses' prayer through Joshua, but he will answer Moses' prayer in full through Jesus, the greater Joshua. You know Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. They both mean Yahweh saves. But Jesus is the greater Joshua who doesn't just have the spirit, he is filled with the spirit Jesus is not just a temporary shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep so that they won't just enter a physical promised land, but the eternal one. Answer number three comes from chapters 28 and 29. To live in the promised land, God's people will need to view their time as belonging to God. So not just themselves, not just the land, they will need to view their time as belonging to God. To God. So these two chapters detail daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly offerings that God called them to make. So much of this material has been presented to us before in books like Exodus and Leviticus. But this time around, the emphasis is on how much stuff they are to offer back to God that he has already given to them. 
So the ESV Study Bible, which is a great resource if you don't have it, it tallies the yearly total. So over the course of a year, between the daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly offerings, they would offer 113 bulls, 1,086 lambs, over one ton of flour, and 1,000 bottles of wine and oil. All those numbers would remind them, truly, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. God would provide all that they needed to live for him. Chapters 28 and 29 remind God's people that the entire rhythm and pattern of their lives was to be marked by gratitude to God and worship of God. These chapters, God tells his people every day, every week, every month, and every year you have is a gift from me and to be used for me. It's from me and it's for me. Now we make this clarification often as we go through the New Testament or the Old Testament rather, that God's people are no longer one single geopolitical nation. No, God's people through Christ are now comprised of many nations. So that means we don't get the exact same kind of instructions that we get here in Numbers. However, in the New Testament, God still tells us to treat our time well. In the New Testament, there's still a rhythm and pattern of our lives as to be marked by gratitude to God and worship of God. You might remember this verse. It's a well-known verse, Ephesians 5, 16. What does it tell us to do? To make the best use of the time. In other translations, it might say to redeem the time because the days are evil. Now, in thinking about how to apply this verse to us, I thought, well, maybe I can quote some stats that everybody knows of, of how much a TV the average American watches per week or, or how much time you spend on your phone every day. You, you know that yourself. If you've got an iPhone, you can look at the screen time, right? And I can make all of us feel sufficiently guilty. And, and maybe that's a starting point. It just can't be the ending point. I think the real pivot for us will come. When you view time as a gift and as an opportunity, when you view time as a gift and an opportunity, the billionaire Warren Buffett said, I can pretty much buy anything that I want. I can't buy more time. Even a non-Christian can understand that. Each day and week and month and year you get is a gift from God and is to be used for God. With his help, friend, make the best use of the time. So tell me if you have ever done this. You're, you're running late to work or you're running late to school and you're trying to get, gather all of your things. Uh, you get your coffee ready. You get your lunch packed up. You get your coat on. Uh, you get your shoes on. And then you go to look for your keys. Right? So if you're like me, I never put my keys in the same spot. So they're, they're not in your coat pockets. They're not in the little dish uh, by the front door. They're not in the fridge. I don't know why you would put them in the fridge, but you check anyway. They're not under the couch cushion. And so all of a sudden the clock is ticking and you're panicking. Like I'm not making best use of the time now. And so now you, be, you become prayerful in that moment. And you say, God, if you let me find my keys, you know, I, I promise I will, I will not swear today. I promise if, if, if you let me find my keys. Chapter 30 involves vows that God's people would make to God. Now, they probably aren't as trivial as help me find my keys because they're about to enter battle. 
This would be a prime time of making a vow to God. But this gives us our fourth answer. To live in the promised land, God's people would have to keep their promises to God. To live in the promised land, God's people would have to keep their promises to God. So a good way to read Old Testament law, a helpful tool, is to look at how a command from God reveals the character of God. Look at how a command from God reveals the character of God. So here, God tells his people, you need to keep your promises to me. What does that show us about who God is? Well, it should remind the people that God is the one who keeps his promises to them. I mean, the promised land should be exhibit A. In other words, just as God keeps his promises, so they should keep their promises. Now you can keep going. A command of God reveals the character of God. You keep going into the New Testament. You can see how Jesus fulfills this command and perfectly reflects God's character. You could do this with every Old Testament command. So when in, you see in the New Testament from Jesus, Jesus is always honest. 1 Peter 2.22 says that there is no deceit in Jesus's mouth. Jesus vowed to give his life as a ransom for many. And what did Jesus do? He kept that vow and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Friends, Jesus died for all of our lies and all of our deceit. Jesus died for all the times that you have made a promise and broke it. But he died not just so that you would have freedom from the penalty of your sin. He died so that you would have freedom from the power of your sin. Believer in Jesus, through him, you can be an honest and truthful person. Through Jesus, you can be an honest and truthful person and reflect the character of God like Jesus does. So let's think about each, each life situation in, in the room. Kids, when you are talking to your parents, employees, when you talk to your boss, husbands, when you talk to your wives, wives, when you talk to your husbands, you stop and ask yourself, is what I'm saying completely honest and true? That's a good filter for you to have. Because when you ask yourself that, I bet you will find that you cut more corners than you realize. Friend, like Jesus, you can reflect the character of God. Just as God is honest and truthful and keeps his promises, so you too can be honest and truthful and keep your promises. Answer number five comes from chapter 31. To live in the promised land God's people would have to live in light of God's holiness. To live in light of God's holiness. Numbers 31 picks up and fills out what happened in Numbers chapter 25. In that chapter, the Moabite women infiltrated the people of Israel. They seduced the men of Israel and they led them astray to worship Baal instead of worship the Lord. In Numbers 31 verse 16, we learn that it was Balaam, that powerful pagan prophet who Gave the, who hatched the idea to the Moabite women to do this. In Numbers 31, we, we learn that this is God's plan to enact vengeance on the people of Midian and Moab. Now, just a clarification on those terms. Midianites is more like an umbrella term. It would be a confederation of smaller groups among whom the Moabites were one. So Numbers 31, when you read it, if you just glance at some of the details here, 
This is one of those chapters in the Bible that might shock you and might disturb you even. Here in this chapter, at God's instruction, God's people kill and plunder the Midianites. They destroy their cities. They kill nearly all of their people. Now, we came across something similar when the Israelites faced Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, back in Numbers chapter 29. So back when we were there, we talked about a few ways we might make sense of scenes like this in the Bible, but we're going to talk about a few more ways we might make sense of it. I don't know if, if you know this, it's, it's often helpful when, to define what something is when you look first at what something isn't. That's what we'll do just for a minute with Numbers 31. Let's look at what it isn't. Numbers 31, for as shocking and disturbing of a chapter that it potentially is, Numbers 31 isn't something new. It isn't something new. Genesis chapter six, God flooded the whole earth because, quote, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In Genesis 18, God wiped out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because, quote, their sin was very grave. This isn't something new. Numbers 31 isn't something foreign. It's not like this type of thing happens only to those countries besides Israel that God just likes to pick on. No, 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 no. God holds the same standard, if not even a higher standard, for Israel. We read it even in Numbers. In chapter 14, when God's people refuse to trust in him and go into the land, what does God say to Moses? Essentially, Moses, let me wipe these people out and build you a new nation. The only difference between Israel and the rest of the nations was that Israel had someone to intercede on their behalf. That was the only difference. Numbers 31 isn't something that we copy. Once again, God's people are no longer a single geopolitical nation. We are comprised of many nations. Our battles are no longer against physical armies, but spiritual ones. Numbers 31 isn't a one-off event. It isn't something that is one time. What happens here in this chapter on a small scale previews what will happen later on a large scale when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, he will judge all the earth, including all of his enemies who have given the worship that he deserves to other things. Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye who will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth, not just the Midianites, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Last, Numbers 31 isn't something that you can understand apart from understanding God's holiness. It isn't something you can understand apart from God's holiness. You will never understand how big your sin is until you understand how big God is. Maybe here's an analogy that, that could get us somewhere. Wives, I wonder, how would you feel if you picked up your husband's phone and his screensaver, his wallpaper on his phone was a picture of another woman? And uh, you heard in the, in the room next to you, each night your husband called this woman and, and tell, tell her the, the cares of the day. Wives uh, or husbands, I wonder how you would feel if you bought your wife a, a new dress, a new jewelry, new shoes. She wore it, she looks radiant. And then she leaves the house to go pick up another man. Physical adultery 
is just a small glimpse of what we do when we commit spiritual idolatry. So maybe Numbers 31 hits us so hard because deep down we know just as much as these people, we have cheated on God. And apart from a mediator, apart from someone standing in our place, we too would be deserved to be wiped out. Friends, the good news is that there is refuge from Christ's judgment in Christ's sacrifice. Hide yourself in Jesus. God's son who was sent by the father to take the judgment that you deserve. And when you remember what your sin did to Jesus and what Jesus did for you, you will desire to be far from sin and close to him you will live in light of God's holiness. Answer six comes from chapter 32. To live in the promised land, God's people must live in light of God's unity. They must live in light of God's unity. Well, they say that some of the world's greatest ideas started on the back of a napkin. Uh, So the legend has it in 1966, Roland King pitched his plan for a new low-cost airline to his lawyer, Herb Kelleher. He drew a perspective route between Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas on the back of a napkin. And the following year, Southwest Airlines was born. The Numbers 32, two and a half tribes of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, have what's like their own back of the napkin plan. It's like they draw the promised land And then they include the territory that is freshly conquered, but that's just a little east of the promised land. Territory conquered in Numbers chapter 19. It's not a part of the original package, but they notice this is a really nice piece of property. And so they go to Moses with their little napkin and they say, hey, Moses, how about we live in this land? Would you mind? And Moses may be a little cranky. He says, no, he freaks out. He says, you guys are just like your parents. You don't want to go in the promised land. You want to leave the hard work to everybody else. While the two and a half tribes respond, they say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's not the case. They assure Moses in Numbers 32, verse 18. They say, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. Well, Numbers 32 reminds God's people If they're going to live in the promised land, well, then they got to stick together. They need to remain united. You couldn't have some tribes looking out for their own interests instead of the interests of the whole group. Now, that wouldn't just be good for them pragmatically. That would be good for them to reflect who God is. God is one. In himself, God is a united community. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus' prayer for his church in John 17 reflects this. He says, God, may they all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So as a local church, God calls us to reflect his united character, to stick together. That's an important distinction. Unity is not uniformity. This doesn't mean that everybody has the same opinion. It doesn't mean that everybody has the same background, that everybody has the same gifts or the same personalities. No, unity means that we're just tied by something that's deeper than all of those things. We are tied and bound by the gospel of God. And so, like our Lord, we seek not just our own interests, but the interests of the whole church. We are united. Answer seven comes from chapter 33. In order to live in the promised land, 
God's people must look back to God's faithfulness. God's people must look back to God's faithfulness. When you were growing up, maybe you kept a journal or a diary. Uh, maybe you uh, spilled all your little secrets in the, in the journal or diary, and then you vouchsafed those secrets and kept the journal shut with one of those little impenetrable locks. <laughs> Not that impenetrable. Numbers 33 is like a peek into Moses' journal. Even look at verse two. It says, Moses wrote down, recorded this. This is the only place in the whole book where it, says, where it clearly says that Moses wrote this down. And as he's writing, it, it, even though the, their leader who has been with them for decades will soon depart, God will still be with them. This chapter, this sort of journal entry was meant to bolster their confidence. They could look back at all the times that God had delivered them, all the times that God had saved them, sustained them, and that would bolster their confidence that God would continue to do all those things. So, so maybe in light of Moses' action here, Moses' journal entry, one way for you to apply this is not to keep your journal secret. I'm not saying you gotta spill your beans to everybody you meet. What I am saying is that sharing how God has faithfully cared for you can really encourage someone else. Can really encourage someone else. You know, we do that. We try to do that at community groups. We try to do that in good conversations here on Sunday mornings. We also get to do that uh, when our new members share their testimonies of how the Lord saved them. It's just, it bolsters our confidence. You know, we, we get to hear how God has saved some people here out of just dead religion. We get to hear how God has saved people from eating disorders. We get to hear how, people, how God has saved people from being trapped by addictions. We get to hear about how God has saved people from being wronged in relationships. And we get to look back at how many people God has brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And our confidence is bolstered that God will continue to care for us. Answer eight comes from chapter 34. Finish line is in sight, guys. In order to live in the promised land, God's people must look forward to God's promise. God's people must look forward to God's promise. We keep using this phrase, the promised land. And if we're not careful, someone might quote the princess bride to us and say, you keep using this phrase. I don't think it means what you think it means. So what does the promised land mean? Numbers 34 clarifies. This is the first detailed description of what land God actually has in mind. And by describing in detail, God intends to stir his people's hearts to put winds of hope in their sails. So he gets real specific. He says the land that runs to the Mediterranean Sea on the west and to the Jordan River on the east and north and south would go all the way from like the, the deserts to modern day Lebanon and Syria. It reminded me, next week uh, my parents are set to go to Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida with our niece and nephew. And now they didn't have this when I, when I was a kid, but now they have this thing called YouTube. Maybe you have heard of it. Uh, now on YouTube, you can look up a tour of all of Universal Studios with all of its rides, with all of its attractions. And so every time our niece and nephew look at these previews, they get more excited to go. Brother and sister, God doesn't want you to lose your childlike wonder and anticipation of where he's bringing you. Just as he gives a tour of the promised land to his people here in Numbers, he gives us a tour of the new heavens 
and the new earth in the book of Revelation. We read it earlier. I'll read it again. Let these words just marinate in you. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. Let this preview stir your heart and look ahead to what God has promised. What will God's people need to live in the promised land? Answer nine comes from chapter 35. They will need to keep the land clean. They'll need to keep the land clean. God's underlying concern actually comes at the very last verse of the chapter. Chapter 35, verse 34. He says, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So just like God always does, he gives them what they need for what he's called them to do. So God gives them Levites and he gives them the cities of refuge to keep his land clean. In this chapter, he details how all 12 tribes of Israel are to set aside four cities in their territory where the Levites, that is the priestly tribe, can live. Now, the Levites don't have land inheritance because it's said many times, God himself is their inheritance. So you can say that they're like salt. They're sprinkled throughout the land. They are in it, but they are not to be of it. And they would keep all of Israel freshly living for God as they teach and model who God is and what it's like to live for him. Friends, Christians are meant to be a lot like Levites, sprinkled throughout the earth as in it, but not of it, seeking to teach and model who God is and how we live for him. Well, God also gives the cities of refuge to keep the place where he dwells clean, to keep the place where he dwells from being defiled with innocent blood. So we referenced these cities of refuge a couple of weeks ago, but just a reminder, six of the cities where the Levites lived would be these cities of refuge. This would be a place where if someone committed a manslaughter, someone who killed someone else accidentally could flee from a family member of that victim who is trying to avenge that victim's death. So these cities served not just as a type of house arrest, they also ensured that due process would happen for the perpetrator. So just to bring it home to us, God no longer dwells in a specific land. God dwells among a specific people. By his spirit, God has taken up residence in each person who has repented of their sins and trusts in his son, Jesus Christ. And God especially dwells among those people as they are gathered together to worship him. So that means, friends, we too are charged to keep the people where God dwells clean. So what does that mean for you concretely? Rubber hits the road. That means here you are to pursue growth in Christ likeness with other people. Let me get even more concrete. That means here at least one person knows you really well and you know that person really well. That means here you are transparent with at least one other person that you confess your sins and your struggles and you ask for help. And you do that for somebody else. 
That means if you clearly recognize sin or have been sinned against, that you lovingly but directly confront that. That is how we keep the people where God dwells clean. Well, the finish line is in sight. Answer number 10 from chapter 36. To live in the promised land, God's people will need to have faith that God's promises will last. Faith that God's promises will last. Daughters of Zelophehad, they're back. This is the sequel. Back for more law and order promised land unit. They've thought through another sticky point of their family's land. They say, hey, Moses, it's great that we can inherit the land, but what if we marry someone from a different tribe? When we die off, what's going to happen to our land then? Will it just go off to another tribe and will our family lose it? Well, Moses goes to the Lord. God gives an answer. God says, hey, marry who you want, but if you want to keep the land in your family, you need to marry within your tribe. So these laws might deal with what looks like to us just really minutia, but they're actually God's way of ensuring that none of his people are taken advantage of and none of his people are left behind. But on the whole, this is the last chapter of Numbers, right? And it seems just like an anticlimactic way to end. Really some like, case law and this really random dispute? Well, just like the first time, these daughters, when they showed up, they would need to believe in something in order to ask the question that they asked. So the first time they show up, they asked about inheriting the land only because they believed that God would give them the land. Here, the second time they show up, they ask about passing down the land only because they must believe that God will allow them to keep the land generation after generation. In other words, they must believe that God's promises will last. So my fellow wilderness wanderers, Israel's story points forward to what God has done through his son, that God has delivered us from slavery to sin, and he has made us citizens of a new promised land, the promised land of heaven. But now we are sojourners on earth. So here is a final good note from the book of Numbers to end on. God's promises will last. We'll sing in just a few moments. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your sure promises of grace, given not because we have earned them, but given because you are merciful. Lord Jesus, we hide ourselves in you. And we are able to stand in the presence of our Father, not by the labors of our hands, but by your sacrifice for us. So we hide ourselves in you all of our days, looking back at your faithfulness, looking forward to your promise, and prepare us well to live with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.